If you care about the environment, perhaps think twice before you buy another key cup. Use a mug from home, maybe. Instead, chat to your MP, send them a letter, call them, tell them you vote for policy. Then you can pat yourself on the back for investing in an environmental future, not a consumerist one. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Climactic. The people's voice on climate change. Hello, Mark. Hello, listeners. Well, haven't we done something, dare I say, special for this week's episode? Absolutely. Yeah, special's the word. I'll agree with you this time, Rich. Okay. <laughs> yes, we won't be featuring an interview this week. Instead, the Climactic Brains Trust will discuss a recurring theme we've noticed in our first 20-odd episodes. And that is personal responsibility for global warming versus pressure on lawmakers and polluters. In essence, how do we most effectively change the world? And the first voice you heard was Ella Plumens Puton, reading from her excellent Crikey article where she nails this problem perfectly. And we'll have the full recording of that soon. By the way, Mark, did you like how I referred to us as a brains trust? Yes, I did notice, Rich. I'm going to have to work really hard to earn that title this episode. Yeah, hopefully people like it. Lucky we've got listeners with a sense of humor. <laughs> and a sense of imagination. So to get right into it, the recurring theme we've been noticing is an interesting one. And significantly, it's been aired in the press very recently by famous environmental writers from all over the world. So we're on to a, a pretty hot subject here. Yeah, the question is, do we, as good citizens advocating sustainability and wishing to leave a livable planet to our kids, direct our energy to personal sustainability? Or do we lobby governments and the big polluters? Assuming it's an either-or option, what do we concentrate on? Reduce our personal carbon footprint or become active in lobbying governments, local, state and federal, and pressuring polluting businesses? I think it's fair to say that the majority of governments and businesses won't change their ways in respect to polluting in a democracy unless they see that the people, the voters and consumers, want change. Would you agree with that? I absolutely would. I mean, it's the function of a democratic government to respond to people's wishes. That's why it's kind of very frustrating what's going on in Australia right now and overwhelming public support, or at least majority support, for action on climate change, and we're not seeing it. But yes, in essence, uh, we can't say we want something until we have said we want it. With that in mind, Mark, which action is most effective? What's, your been, what's been your experience? I'll sort of just start off with a disclaimer that where I'm at is I, I am very new to the space and I kind of want to lead with that always on the front foot because until only a few months ago, I was not active on climate change at all. I was talking the talk but not walking it. And so now I've decided to get serious about it. I'm quite trepidatious and scared of of being put to purity tests throughout this process as I start to act more on sustainability. Absolutely, the most effective way to make change is to start exerting pressure at the, the system level, which means 
the government level and the corporate level, that's how we actually start to change society, not by just individual piecemeal actions. But for me on the outside, sort of watching leaders over the last few years, it's very easy to be like, oh, Al Gore, you do so much good for the environment, but you here you are flying around the world very frequently, and your personal carbon footprint is gigantic. And and I'm quite scared of that same test being applied to me. So I feel very much pressured to be personally sustainable before I can start to act at scale, which has meant taking up a lot of my personal time and energy and focus on making myself personally sustainable, even though I think that that's not a solution to the problem. Like I, I'm just one of a five million person city. I think too, Mark, Personal sustainability sets an example, doesn't it? I mean, I have kids, they've left home now, but we always try to put ideas and personal sustainability at the forefront of how we lived. And we hope that passes on uh, no other way than the, just to bring up kids that way. I think it does set an example, you know, to, to children, but also friends. They also look at you and go, oh, wow, you know, a backyard can be done in a small space and you can grow veggies and things like that. So I do think that personal sustainability is a first step. I think it was Madeleine Clark said that it doesn't matter how far you are along that personal sustainability journey, as long as you start the first step, as long as you have a go and look to reduce plastic, look to grow a vegetable garden, that sort of thing. Now, speaking of vegetable gardens, Mark, I know you've just taken possession you're the proud owner of a worm farm. Can you tell me how that's going? Yeah, it is currently sitting on my balcony empty. Um, I brought it home just over 24 hours ago, but I've already sort of booked in an appointment with a gardening group up at RMIT, the university here in Melbourne, to go up and get myself some worms in a few days. Honestly, I, I feel like that step, I've taken it, A, because... The opportunity presented itself to get a $5 worm farm, and who could say no to that? $5, geez, that's good. That's good. Quite good, right? But I'm doing it not because I myself really enjoy gardening. I'm not going to be doing it for my own pleasure, but I'm doing it out of a sense of I don't want to feel the guilt of being involved with a basically a rubbish system that I would then feel guilty about. Currently, if I put my food scraps in my bin, I I know they go to landfill and they're producing methane. But if I take a couple hours out of my week and more here at the start while I'm learning to be able to to take care of those myself, all I'm doing there is kind of alleviating guilt. And you're completely right about what you said about what we do with our personal sustainability can set an example for people around us. And you're right with kids. You're not just doing it for yourself, but hopefully you're setting a a precedent for what your kids will do as well, which is great. That's time I'm taking with my worm farm that I'm not out pressuring my building manager about getting onto like a green bin, like a organic waste bin. It's not time I'm spending with the local government. So in essence, I'm spending time to remove myself from a system I don't agree with rather than trying to change that system, which is this dichotomy we're now talking about. You know, do I, I guess I've got to take the step zero of, changing it for myself, and then hopefully create a system where I can just take part in and it can be convenient again once it's a system that actually works. Look, I, I feel really out of it because I, I don't have a worm farm, Mark, and I, and I want one. I've been listening to you talking about a worm farm, and I've also been listening to Ash. Now, Ash works just down at the local coffee shop. She makes the best coffee in the Central West. I think we've spoken about her before. Now she's got. Yes, I got to speak to her. That's on the phone. right. I'd that forgotten great. about that. Yes. yes. 
Hey, yeah. Ash. <laughs> she has got herself a worm farm. She's been instructing me in the last few weeks about Great. what to do, what to feed them, when to feed them, and the worm castings, the all-important worm castings, of course. But very interesting points that you make there, Mark. I'd just like to go back to a, an issue that, that I found was pivotal. Have you heard of the no dams issue in the 80s? No, not at all. I, I understand we built a lot of dams in the 80s, so I, I haven't heard about no dams. Right, right. And I, I guess a lot of the younger listeners probably might have heard about it, but I was actually there. I grew up in Tasmania, and around the 80s, we had the Hydroelectric Corporation, which was the energy company that ran Tasmania. They're very politically influential. They wanted to flood and destroy the Franklin River, one of the last wild rivers, and and build a new dam. And for the first time that I remember growing up in Tasmania, many, many people stood up and said no to the government. And there were marches in the streets, literally, and families split apart. And it was a funny time growing up in conservative Tasmania to see this. Now, the government introduced a referendum purporting to give us a, a vote on the issue, but in fact, they gave us the, the choice of two dams. So what a third of us did, a third of voters, and it was my first vote, Mark, is we scribbled no dams on the ballot paper. And eventually this this protest, and it was a massive protest, uh, came to the ear of the Bob Hawke government, just been elected, and the dam was stopped. And it was, for me, a learning curve or perhaps the start of a learning curve for me about people power, people getting together and saying to a government, no, we don't want this. And I think there's a number of in interesting points that you raised there, Mark. And I guess it's as Bill McKibben says, become less of an individual, come together and push for solutions. Or to put it another way, let's not pat ourselves on the back because of personal changes in our behavior. This is a global problem we're facing and we need to find large scale solutions. So that's framed the discussion. Now here's Ella reading from her Crikey article of August the 14th. Towards the end of last month, my toilet paper brand reminds me to celebrate Plastic Free July. Of course, another easy way to cut down your plastic is to top up your toilet paper. Pugs, who gives a crap? During Plastic Free July, masses of acquaintances on social media and the wider internet take to reducing their plastic intake, swapping their Glad Wrap for beeswax and their coffee cup for a keep cup. They sweep proudly past the hordes at the self-serve checkout, a reusable bag triumphantly on display. They document this on social media and urge us to consider turtles and swear off straws. Turtles are important, yes, but individual responsibility in environmentalism is a con. We can't buy our way out of this. As a vegetarian, worm farmer, cyclist, bees, wax wrapper, herb gardener, etc., I want to feel like these actions have a purpose, but really what place do these actions have in terms of climate change mitigation and broader environmentalism? The environmental action that these campaigns lead us to normally involve purchasing something. Buy a keypad, buy a water bottle, buy a reusable bag. Or as my toilet paper company reminded me, buy some more toilet paper. That will save the planet. Our individual environmental responses are integrally tied to a consumerist problem, propelled by green marketing and social trends. Go onto the Keep Cut website and you can either be part of the problem or part of the solution. I know what side I'd rather be on. This kind of binary discourse of right and wrong reveals the way that environmental action has been represented and constructed in Australia. Individual action, responsibility and guilt boil right down to our Australian social values as team players. It entitles us to judge those who don't take up these actions. 
I catch myself unsympathetically eyeballing people at cafes for not using a keep cup. But really, whose values is this action representing and whom is it excluding? Environmentalism as a concept has been frequently criticised for its whiteness. Really, any solution that relies on individual consumer responsibility is contributing to inequality in environmentalism. Measuring individuals as equal in terms of responsibility does not adequately represent environmental past, present and futures. In terms of who was exploited, who continues to reap the rewards and who will be most vulnerable to environmental hazards in the future. It pulls us together in an environmental crisis and asks every one of us to do their fair share. But environmental issues are not fair. Consumerist environmentalism is so appealing to white middle class Australians because it relies on very little to change how we live our lives. Shows like The War on Waste are attractive as it positions us as green warriors who fight the waste problem one coffee cup at a time. It affirms that we continue our do-gooding behaviour by simply changing brands while still maintaining order. Frankly, this is at odds with the societal upheaval that may be required to confront our environmental truths. This is not to discount the efforts in these everyday changes. It's not that you should stop. Instead, you should stop patting yourself on the back. It doesn't end here. These actions rely on a system of individual consumers with equal capacity for change. It is not near enough or fair to guilt all Australians into using a keep cup and wash our hands of environmental issues. This is a capitalist system where all people are not equal. We have different capacities. As individuals, we cannot be responsible for real change, but as a whole, we are. Councils and government must be the ones to respond to environmental issues, and Australian citizens must demand it from them. Maintaining individual consumer responsibility is convenient for governments, as our economy is built heavily on environmental degradation. Individual environmental actions can only go so far if the collective interest still lies in ecological deterioration. The buck must be turned to them to see a real change. If you care about the environment, perhaps think twice before you buy another key cup. Use a mug from home, maybe. Instead, chat to your MP, send them a letter, call them, tell them you vote for policy. Then you can pat yourself on the back for investing in an environmental future, not a consumerist one. As mentioned earlier, this very conundrum discussed by Ella has been raised by some of the world's most well-known environmental writers. One of these is George Monbiot, environmental author, journalist and columnist for The Guardian, in a piece on September 6th. The title of the article, We Won't Save the Earth with a Better Kind of Disposable Coffee Cup, very much sets out the famous columnist's point, that we need systemic change if we are to tackle global warming. And here's Rich reading some extracts from the article in his best Dan Carlin. Great for all you hardcore history fans out there. George Monbiot, We Won't Save the Earth with a Better Kind of Disposable Coffee Cup, written on the 6th of the 9th, 2018. Quote, The problem is not just plastic, it is mass disposability. Or to put it another way, the problem is pursuing, on the one planet known to harbour life, a four-planet lifestyle. Regardless of what we consume, the sheer volume of consumption is overwhelming the Earth's living systems. Don't get me wrong, our greed for plastic is a major environmental blight, and the campaigns to limit its use are well-motivated and sometimes effective. But we cannot address our environmental crisis by swapping one overused resource for another. The right question is, how should we live? 
but systemic thinking is an endangered species, end quote. And from the end of the article, quote, The answer to the question, how should we live, is simply. But living simply is highly complicated. In Huxley's Brave New World, the government massacred the simple lifers. This is generally unnecessary. Today they can be safely marginalised, insulted and dismissed. The ideology of consumption is so prevalent that it has become invisible. It is the plastic soup in which we swim. One planet living means not only seeking to reduce our own consumption, but also mobilising against the system that promotes the great tide of junk. This means fighting corporate power, changing political outcomes, and challenging the growth-based, world-consuming system we call capitalism. As last month's Hothouse Earth paper, which warned of the danger of flipping the planet into a new irreversible climatic state, concluded, incremental linear changes are not enough to stable the Earth system. Widespread, rapid and fundamental transformations will likely be required to reduce the risk of crossing the threshold. Disposable coffee cups made from new materials are not just a non-solution. They are a perpetuation of the problem. Defending the planet means changing the world. End quote. campaigning organisation led by people of colour. And that is why I am here speaking today. Because we're not just a racial justice organisation, and this is not just a rally on climate change, but this is a rally about justice, and we are an organisation for justice, and you are people who believe in justice. We need to stop seeing silos. We're not climate activists or environmentalists or anti-racism campaigners, or labour rights activists. We're simply people who believe in justice. We're simply people who believe in a better world. That was the scene outside the State Library in Melbourne. Friday the 7th of September. It shows that people who strongly care about global warming are starting to come out of their gardens, the farmers markets, the local environment groups, and joining their voices to exert political power. And what a voice it is. So the question is, are these people who attended this rally putting time and energy into political campaigning at the expense of more sustainable changes they could be making in their lives? Or in maintaining the changes they've already made? And is there even an answer about which way will cause change fast enough to keep a safe climate. These are the real questions, Mark, the ones we need to be asking, and of course that makes them some of the hardest to answer. Of course, Rich, this is all predicated on there being only two options, and that the two are mutually exclusive. Yes, why not both? Former councillor L. Gibbs described the absolute need for people in a democracy to continue to lobby their local councillors on major issues such as climate change 
in episode 6. As did councillors Tim Baxter and Kat Copsey from Port Phillip Council in episodes 3 and 5, respectively. Yep, so it's clear we need to lobby our local, state and federal representatives at all times, not just elections. Go to them. Don't wait to be presented with substandard policy on the environment and climate change. However, we have also been advised by some magnificent guests that personal sustainability is not only desirable, but healthy and sets a great example. Rizzo Dwyer in episode 17 talks about this and refers to a fantastic book, Switch on Sustainability. Like some of the best climate campaigners I've met who happen to be Buddhist would say, why not both? Exactly, Mark. As Madeleine Clark suggests, it doesn't matter where you are on your sustainability journey. And you don't have to be some fanatical eco-warrior in your own life to care about sustainability. Hopefully you, like me, can start to overcome your fear of having to pass a purity test or be this tall to care about sustainability. But as Ella, George Bombio, Bill McKibben, and so many others point out, it's not enough to think that, say, you're buying a keep cup will save the world from the cataclysmic effects of climate change. We do need to change our habits. And the habits of the big polluting companies. So, as Ella and George Mambia would say, personal sustainability is not enough. We need to get out there and put pressure on our elected representatives through action, lobbying and voting. And pressure big polluting companies in the same way. And we're doing this in our own way, aren't we, Mark? Yeah, as we discussed off air, Rich, trying to put pressure on lawmakers and polluting companies is very much an aim of Climactic. Yeah, I remember one of the first things you said to me, Mark, was that you wanted to use people's stories. Can you just give us an idea of what uh, you meant by that? Absolutely. So how it started off was I just simply didn't know where to start in this space, and I and I didn't feel like there was a lot of information about mm. just starting in sustainability or what it was like to be a relatable person working in sustainability. They were, they were kind of like another species to me, people who finished their you know master's in environment, and then got a job at a local council or a nonprofit, and they had a, a whole journey and life story that I, I didn't know, mm. and I and I assumed it would be quite foreign to me. But as soon as I started hearing their stories, I saw that their paths were quite relatable, and the steps they'd taken, I could start to emulate as well. It's through communication now at this point that all the facts are out there already. It's now the time we need to start coming together as communities to, as Bill McKibben said, sort of get over individual action yeah. and start to take collective action. And that doesn't happen without this layer of media, mm. without this self-organizing ability that stories give us to really realize we're not in this alone and that a lot of us have a lot more in common than we do apart. I remember too, Mark, that one of the things that when I first came on board for Climactic was that it was a platform. So for those people that you talk about, we provided the platform for them to tell their stories to the world, to people, so they can learn and pass on stories. And I think that is tied up in our future goals. Is that right? It absolutely is. Climactic is definitely intended to be a platform. All the environmental groups I've talked to out there, they're doing such great work in their groups. They are doing what they set out to do, but what they're not doing is telling the story about what they're doing. Mm. It's, it makes it much harder for the next group to come along yeah. and follow in their footsteps when it's not clear what they did, what their learnings have been, you know, what mistakes they've made so you can not make them in future yourself. Yep. And I think... What groups really need is a kind of a, a partner in media. Absolutely. Uh, and sadly, the traditional media does not have any interest in filling that role. So there seemed to be a big gap for kind of citizen journalism mm. to come along and, and help groups 
tell their stories better. So that's absolutely the place where Climactic is at. We want to grow into a platform that groups all across Australia and the South Pacific can easily access us and we can easily give our skills and time to them yeah. to help them tell their stories. Yeah, wasn't it fantastic, Mark, to hear Phil Wilkinson say that he was experimenting with a new form of communication to the podcast interview last week and uh, was highly successful. So as Ella said in a prescient article, by all means watch and reduce your plastic disposable cups and always look at ways to limit your household plastic use. But was this the urge to pat yourself on your back? Because there's so much more to do. Thanks for listening to our special discussion, folks. We hope you got as much out of it as we did making it. And now for some credits. I'd like to thank our fantastic producer. Yes, <laughs> I said fantastic, Rich. Caleb Fidicaro. Our designer, Abigail Hawkins. And I'd like to thank Greg Rassi for the amazing theme music. We hope you've done it justice. Also, Gretchen Miller. Thank you, Gretchen, for your help, support, and lovely comments. Don't forget to check out our show notes for links and check out our new YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. The Climactic Collective.